You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and as usual, Andrew Kingsley is with me. Say hello, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. And uh, we are in the book of Romans. We have made it through chapter 11, which is such a good feeling. Uh, I'm not sure we did that good of a job making it through chapter 11, but we got through chapter 11, and I don't know if anybody in the short period that we're using to cover this, I don't know if anybody can really get down into the depths of those chapters. Uh, It really would take a year or more of podcasting like this to really get to the bottom of those And that's not the purposes of this podcast. We are surveying the books. Um, We're not going over them so quickly that uh, you miss some of the finer points. But at the same time, we purposely skip some things so that we can give our listeners a general idea of every book in the Bible. That's our mission. And so now that we're in chapter 12 and following, uh, we... I, I don't think we're going to have to spend as much time thinking as we do applying. So we're going to work really hard to economize our time so that we have some, some time at the end of this particular podcast to make practical application. I don't know that we've done that good a job of doing that, you know, in some of the other chapters of Romans, but we're going to make an effort this time. And Andrew's going to help us with that. He's got the reading today. And uh, he's going to lay down a foundation. So I'm going to turn it over to him, let him outline this uh, in Romans chapters 12 and 13. Yeah, like you said, we're going to shift our focus here for this episode and the next episode to a much more practical focus. And that's because that's exactly what the text does. The first 11 chapters are called the doctrinal portion. And then when you get to chapter 12, all the way to the end, uh, a lot of commentators call this the practical portion portion of the book. So when we get in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we have a really uh, a really good introduction. Paul sets the scene for us. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. And perfect. So the foundation that we have here is that Paul is saying, therefore, brothers, so based on this knowledge of salvation that we have, because Paul has just explained the gospel to us very thoroughly, based on that knowledge, this is the manner in which we should live. We need to transform our minds, renew our minds to determine what is good and acceptable, perfect. What are those things? Well, starting in verse 3, We're going to have a long list that's really going to go all the way to chapter 15 and verse 13. But for our purposes today, we're just going to go through chapter 13. And the first thing that we see here is that we should serve with sober judgment. And that is from verses 3 through 8. Paul here is talking about the gifts that we have and using them in the church. We'll start reading in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He's talking here about our roles of worship in the church, specifically for them, their spiritual gifts. Verse 4, As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he lists a few and says, if this is your gift, use it. But the idea there is, be have sober judgment about your own self, recognize your gift, and use it. Um, Did you just say defer? Yeah. Having gifts that defer. <laughs> differ. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, the well, gift one, like, yeah. maybe prophecy is the big one, so the other gifts have to defer to prophecy. Yeah, they defer to one another. But I think it's different gifts. Yeah, it's a blooper reel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, differ. It's definitely differ. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so we'll just move into verse 9 and pretend like that never happened. Uh, verse I'm not nine, editing that. Yeah, that all, stays in. All six of our listeners will get a good laugh <laughs> and think I'm an idiot. Verse 9, i got to look smart for the rest of this. Verse 9 begins a list of really here a lot of general advice. Drew, uh, when we were talking before the podcast, uh, I think you've classified them as 21 general characteristics of a Christian. Yeah, it depends. You can count these so many different ways. There's um, a lot of them, though. If You know, preachers do this thing sometimes where they're going to see how many points they can get. So... If you, if you do that, you can make Romans 12, 9 through 21, 21 points. But Which, I and think, if you do a five point sermon, how many sermons does that give you? Quite a few. That <laughs> gives you seven. You could probably stretch those out. Um, oh, yeah. So here's a few, and we're just going to move through the list here. First of all, verse 9, let love be genuine. We see this again in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. And I'm going to jump over to chapter 13 and verse 8. Uh, so if you're riding in your car, what I'm trying to do for you is go ahead and read all the verses about love and tackle love at once. Verse 9, love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Verse 8 of chapter 13, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So first of all, let love be genuine. Secondly, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Third, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then there's this collection of verses on this idea presented in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And there's a few verses in this little section, verses 14 to the end, that don't really, I guess, fall under that theme. But for the most part, verses 14 to 21 had to do with this idea. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a lot to say that one characteristic of a Christian there. Then there's also rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. So there's all 21. Okay. And then we move into chapter 13, 
which comes in nicely after this section on not avenging yourselves and not uh, overcoming evil with more evil, but by overcoming evil with good. Leaving it to the wrath of God. Yes, and leaving it to the wrath of God. And Drew, as you were explaining to me before we began the podcast today, uh, this next thought of submission to authorities kind of defines that wrath of God. Um, and there's a couple reasons why. But the next thing that he moves into, chapter 13 and verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, in the next section, I think we're going to go into a lot of this and talk about um, what it means for governments to be appointed. But I think for now, uh, suffice it to show, well, let's read verse 2. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So God has instituted government just as he has instituted the church, just as he has instituted the family, the home. Uh, this is another another uh, institution brought by God, and if we follow it, if we resist it rather, then we have judgment coming upon us, and that dovetails into the wrath of God, I think, that we were talking about from the previous section. Am I describing that the way you want to describe that, Drew, or am I? Yeah, yeah, I think this is one of those cases where the chapter division does not help us a whole lot, because the beginning of chapter 13 really has a lot to do with the final instructions of chapter 12, and I think I want to talk about that more in the next section and really flesh that out. So that's why I'm not saying much now. But there, <clears throat> there are a lot of questions that we'll get into, uh, like capital punishment, just government, unjust government, um, and, you know, personal retaliation versus, you know, the punishment of the government. But yeah. we'll, we'll save some of that for later. All right. And then that leads us into, uh, the next section that we have is going to be chapter 13 and verse 11, where we have a nice little passage here that really, I guess, serves to be our motivation for living in this way. Uh, you can see what he says here in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So he reminds us here of the salvation that's coming, and that is to serve as our motivation to live in the manner that we have just read, all these practical things, and the rest of them that are coming up in chapters 14 and 15. So there's a basic, very basic outline. Yeah, and I know you said, and I agree with you, that this list kind of, continues on into 14 and 15, but that that last paragraph in chapter 13 is exactly why we feel a little bit of a break between this material and the material in chapters 14 and 15, which I, you may disagree with this, but I think 14 and 15 make like one practical application. It's, it's yeah. like one thing there, and he no. does kind of put a cap on all that we've been talking about with that motivation that comes at the end um, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I think we're justified in stopping at the end of chapter 13 here and waiting until next time to get into chapters 14 and 15.
So the first question that we want to think about in this section is found in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now this phrase, spiritual worship, is translated differently in a lot of translations. Um, so if you're just riding in your car down the road and you get home and you read this and you don't see spiritual worship, it's also translated um, as intelligent worship, as reasonable service, or as your spiritual service of worship. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to translate that, and that comes from some ambiguity in the Greek words. Uh, the one for spiritual comes from a Greek word from where we get our term logic. So that's why you have translation saying reasonable or intelligent um, and then worship is also another word that could be rendered as service or worship. The two are very closely related in their usages uh, here in the New Testament and also in the Septuagint. Uh, but all those things aside, we have a few considerations to make about what exactly spiritual worship is, I guess. Because um, there are there's people on all kinds of sides of this argument. One will say every single thing we do is worship. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So if I go to the theater and get a bucket of popcorn, chewing on that popcorn is worship to God. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have people saying, well, absolutely nothing we do outside of a congregational setting can be viewed as service to God. So there's two sides of this, uh, but there's something, I think, to be said about this living sacrifice and how we worship uh, in this manner. First consideration we need to consider, obviously, is that we are a living sacrifice. There's no other word for that. You have to consider the consideration. Uh, we're a living sacrifice. We have to put to death the things of the flesh, as we've already talked about in Romans chapter 6, where we die to self and we are alive in Christ. Sacrifices are different from those of the Old Testament in that the Old Testament sacrifices were culminated in death. Ours we have a death in the death of the old self in baptism, but ours are really culminated, our sacrifice is really culminated by the life that we live. Uh, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Now, it's, I, I think it's really important as you do that to get the, the imagery in mind that Paul is giving us He's obviously painting a picture of us as that sacrificial lamb. But as yeah. you said, we keep living. And uh, that that's also the background of that, you know, problematic phrase at the end of the verse. Yeah. Spiritual worship or reasonable service or whatever it is. So I think, you know, one reason for his choice of that phrase has to do with the phrase living sacrifice. Yeah. He wouldn't I don't think he would have said this is your re spiritual worship or reasonable service if he had not already put that image out there. Yeah, and, we're talking in the context of it's a lot of um I guess Levitical temple language. Yeah, that, there's there's no doubt about that because uh like uh this word translated uh, service or worship is uh, Latreia. That's not the usual word for worship. The 
The most common word for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo. Uh, that's a verb. But uh, that that's the usual word. This is used only five times in the New Testament. And you think about how much worship mm-hmm. is mentioned in the New Testament, that's not a whole lot of occurrences. And Thayer says it has to do with service rendered for hire or any service or ministration, and it eventually evolved to take in the idea of the service of God. For instance, at the temple. Um, that's how Paul yeah. used it in Romans 9.4. Uh, so, and you mentioned its use in the Septuagint, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the Greek Old Testament. And I think just about every occurrence there, it had to do with Levitical service yeah. or tabernacle service, temple service, uh, which is worshipful service, but it's not just a general term for worship. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably listening right now thinking, what is the big deal about this? But, you know, some have taken this idea that uh, your whole life is uh, worship, and they've run with it to the point of saying, well, you know, if my whole life is worship, then anything can be worship inside the assembly or outside the assembly. You know, um, and that's what we have to be careful about. Yeah, and that leads me to my second point actually on here. Secondly, congregational worship is important. Like you said, some might say, well, if everything I do is worship, then why on earth do I need to be in a congregational worship setting? What's so special right, about that, that, that's worship? definitely one of the things that somebody would say, you know, yeah. if all of life is worship, then I don't have to just worship at this particular time. Congregational worship is its own thing. It's a defined yeah. thing. It's something we see over and over and over again in the New Testament. And so it has to be respected, and this is not going to take anything away from it. And there is this, um, you know, a beginning and ending of worship that you see all the time. Formal worship, if you want to talk about it. You know, like you know, when Abraham was taking Isaac up on Mount Moriah, he said, uh, you know, I and the boy will go over there and worship and then come back to you. And that's kind of the example that's always used for you know, the formal worship or congregational worship yeah. is that it has a beginning and an ending just like it did for Abraham. It still does today. Yeah. Um, because prayer, because songs, because the Lord's, Lord's Supper, Supper, they all yeah. have an ending. I mean, they start and they begin. Let's let's use the Lord's Supper as an example of another abuse of this passage that could be taken. You know, the Bible teaches us, and I, I realize it's only in a couple of places, but the Bible teaches us that Christians took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, on the first day of every week. Uh, you see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. You see that when you read the letter to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul in verse 20 is rebuking the congregation for not getting together to take the Lord's Supper. And when did they come together? You get to chapter 16, verse 2. It's every first day of the week. So every first day of the week they were taking the Lord's Supper. Somebody comes into this passage and says, the Lord's Supper is worship. Paul says all of life is worship. Therefore, we can take the Lord's Supper anytime. Well, I don't, I don't agree with that position, and I think that's a misreading of Romans twelve one, and I think it's you going there to look for a proof text to help you get what you want, which is communion at any time in any circumstances. Yeah, we can't. Uh, that's use this what. I, that's a... what we're concerned about here. That's why we're talking about this phrase and its meaning to such an extent. I don't think Paul had it in mind. 
because he didn't have anybody saying all of life is worship in the formal sense. Mm-hmm. It's not a you can't go here to use this as a crutch or as a proof text to say I don't have to go to congregational worship or congregational worship you know can be done in in any of these manners like uh you know that we read such as you know hating what is evil holding fast to what is good whatever's on the list but and even if and I'm going to point this out before we move on to the next one uh even if you're of the mind that every single thing you do is worship um it still does not negate the fact that congregational worship is important Hebrew writer encourages us not to forsake the assembly. The early church met together to worship God congregationally, like we're talking about, with a with a starting and ending point. And I don't concede the fact that everything we do is spiritual worship. Every single thing, such as chewing on a piece of popcorn, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, but even if you do, uh, you cannot use that as an argument to get away from and I guess organized, a more organized type of worship where you come in and you sing together and you pray together and take the Lord's Supper together. Now, well, uh, have we have we talked about what it means? Have we talked about what the spiritual what worship means? Spiritual worship, reasonable service, rational service. What is Paul talking about there? It's the way... We, we talked about what he, what he isn't saying. No. I think we need to define it. Well, I think he's telling us how we can serve God, the reason, a purposeful way to serve, a purposeful way to be in his service. And obviously that involves living with a renewed mind, that involves being transformed and determining what is good and acceptable and perfect, and living that out. Uh, and and I, living by the will of God constantly. Right. right. Uh, and that causes, you know, things in a sense you know we can serve god we do serve god by constantly living according to his will we can serve god by living in a christian manner in everything that we do you know uh wherever we work at working heartily as for the lord rather than for men colossians 3:23 uh in raising children raising them in the nurture and admonition of the lord ephesians 6:4 uh all of these different things that are maybe secular in and of themselves, and when I say secular, I mean just not have anything to do with spirit, spiritual matters. But all these things that are secular, uh, they don't really—they're not really secular anymore through a transformed, renewed mind, uh, because you're serving God now. And everything you do, uh, like we have in First Corinthians ten thirty-one, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Right. I think that is a good explanation of the rational service, reasonable service, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, ready to leave that? Yep. All right. Let, another thing that is very interesting are Paul's comments about the government in chapter 13. And uh, so, we get this question all the time, you know, is the government good, for example? Uh, what about obviously bad governments? Is capital punishment wrong? Uh, is the death penalty wrong? Um, how can, you know, Paul say, repay no one evil for evil in chapter 12, and then say capital punishment or any kind of punishment is okay in chapter 13? 
So this is where we remind you that we're reading a letter that did not come with chapter and verse divisions in the beginning. And chapter 12 just flows naturally into chapter 13. Now you remember that he said, he does say in chapter 12 verse 17 and following, repay no one evil for evil. Uh, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So he's not saying no vengeance, he's saying only God's vengeance. We are created in God's image, which means we desire righteousness, which is another way of saying we desire justice. You can't get away from it. And anybody who doesn't have a strong inclination for justice hasn't suffered a whole lot of injustice. Uh, so this is this is natural, but what Paul is saying at the end of chapter 12 is it's okay to desire justice and vengeance, just you're not the person qualified to carry that vengeance out. Leave it to the wrath of God. Now most people when they read that out of context are thinking about what? Judgment Day, right? Right. I'll have to wait until the end before justice comes. But chapter 13 says there's that, there's Judgment Day, but in addition to that, there's also the government. God ordained the government. There's no authority except from God. The powers that be have been instituted by God. And so if you resist the authorities, if you resist the government, you resist God, what he has appointed to bring about judgment. So the government is one of the ways that God carries out his vengeance. Now, it, as you said in the last segment, it's not always right. Uh, the government is not infallible. And uh, when the government does make a mistake, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. But basically, the government does punish evildoers and reward those who do good. Not so much the latter as the former. I think it would be good for more governments to follow both sides of that, but you know, we lean towards the punishment. Now, speaking yeah. of punishment, I'm moving really quickly through this material because as we said, we're trying to trying to give ourselves time for practical application. But you know, I get questions a lot about um well, let me I, I'm I should have said this. Chapter twelve says no personal vig vengeance, no vig vigilantes, no personal vengeance. Chapter 13 says, yes to national defense and government punishment. So the way that you seek justice should be through the government and, of course, through Judgment Day at the end of time. Now, what about capital punishment? You know, people ask that all the time. Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. You know, so how can we live in a world with capital punishment? And that also extends to the question of uh, police force. Is it right for a Christian to be a police officer right. or to fight in war, to be a soldier carrying arms? And, um, you know, for a lot of people, that's a personal decision. But when it comes to the Bible, chapter 13 lays out a, a good case in favor of capital punishment. And I'm thinking particularly about the statement in verse, is it verse 5? Are you looking for verse four? the sword? Yeah, verse 4. The government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, that is the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For me, that seals up the question about capital punishment. There's only one use for a sword, 
and that is to kill people. It doesn't make a very good can opener. It doesn't do a lot of other things. But one thing you do with a sword is you kill people with it. Have you ever tried to open a can with a sword? Not yet. Yeah, I, I don't even have a sword. I'm just going to take your word for that. My son saw tried. I was using a machete one day, and he thought that was a sword. But <laughs> That's close. It's not. Um, so where he says the government does not bear the sword in vain, he puts a stamp of approval upon capital punishment. Is capital punishment always a good idea? No. Is war a good idea? No. Um, but the government can use it, along with a number of other deterrents and punishments in the legal system. Um, I'm not somebody that likes to see people put to death. Mm-hmm. And I know there is a problem with a fallible governments putting people to death who were maybe innocent or not deserving of death. And that's horrific. That's a horrible thing. Um, but that does not negate the ideal, which is God-instituted government, including the, the power of force, so there can be law and order on earth, and so life can be enjoyable on earth. Um, in First Timothy 2, Paul tells people to pray for their rulers so that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life. Yeah. If we go with anarchy, life is never peaceful. Mm-hmm. There's no order. Uh, it's might makes right. The strong will be the ones who prevail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that. You know, that's my take on chapter thirteen and capital punishment. There's a there are a lot of considerations I've glossed over. I'm sure. Yeah, that is, well, I've got. I didn't know if, how much time we have left. I don't know. Um, I don't know either. I'll bring up one thing here. We're at 30 here. minutes here. Uh, one question, I guess, that pops up for me when I read about the governments like this. Uh, they're called the ministers and servants of God in verses 4 and 6, which is an interesting way to describe them. Uh, in our podcast on Isaiah, we talked about how Cyrus was called God's anointed, uh, a chosen one of God. Yeah, uh, prophesied long before uh, Cyrus uh, ever lived. Um, and it's interesting to note that God used Cyrus, even though Cyrus was not, um, I guess, a true worshiper of God. God was still able to use him right. for His purposes. Well, Isaiah even said, "You you will do this for me, and you will not yeah, even know that's me, right. yeah. though you do not know me." Yeah, and we talked about in Romans 9, I don't want to go back and get into this, but Paul even brought up the example of Pharaoh and then talked about how God can use, look in verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory. So, I mean, there's something to be said there. God can use uh, a government leader still to be his servant even though that government leader might not be... Because when I hear a servant of God, I'm thinking of someone like David or Job. Right, you're thinking about a believer. Someone righteous. Mm -hmm. But these people can even unwillingly serve. And uh, I think it's important to note that throughout history, rulers have tried to use these verses to basically force Christians into supporting them. 
saying, you have to support me. Look, I'm a minister. I'm a servant of your God. So you have to do whatever I say. Mm-hmm. Well, governments are not infallible. Uh, God, as we mentioned a moment ago, God in his ultimate authority has also established the home and has also established the church. Well, in the home, certainly there are corrupt parents. And in the church, sadly enough, there are corrupt elders. Paul even gives Timothy instructions on how to deal with elders that have charges brought against them in 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. So just because God has instituted the very institution of government, yeah. uh, does not necessarily mean that he has uh, made... It's not an, an endorsement on every government. It is not an honor. endorsement, a stamp of God's approval on each individual leader and every single thing that they do. Yeah. So I, I think that about wraps it up. Let's give ourselves a lot of time for the next section because uh, the practical points that are made are the highlight of these two chapters. We'll be right back. third section. Here's what we're going to do. This is outlined so well by Paul. We're just going to start at chapter 12, verse 3, and see how many of these practical points we can make our way through. Um, I don't think we'll run out of time. we got plenty of time here. And um, verse 3 is kind of where he gets busy with the um, business of, of giving us some practical applications on this justification by faith so uh, that that first one is about humility don't think right. of yourself more highly than you ought to think think with sober judgment or yeah. sober judgment is really the the phrase not humility yeah um, you know I heard NB Hardiman heard a tape of NB Hardiman where he said a man ought not to think more highly than he ought to think but he need not think more lowly of himself either right and I never thought about that little word ought but there is a level of esteem that you should mm-hmm. think about yourself. Yeah. That you're obligated to think about yourself, which means you can go below it mm-hmm. or you can go over it. Right. So sober judgment is about having a you know sane mind about yourself. You're not you're not insanely proud or yeah. insanely um, inferior. And I think this is we always read this and we think about it. Uh, with being on the side of thinking too much of ourselves, and certainly that's what Paul's talking about in the context. Yeah, that's the main thing there. Don't think more highly, but right. I, I'm glad that you pointed out the, the flip side of that, too. We can't think more lowly. Uh, this mirrors a discussion that's much longer in First Corinthians chapter 12 about right. the church being a body, and there's many members, and he talks there about the members that we don't really give that much honor. He says they're actually worthy of bestowing the greater honor. And I think the encouragement, the application for us to take from this, really, aside from uh, the obvious one here, of don't be so arrogant to where you think, you know, your role in the body of Christ is more important than anyone else's. And that right. is to say whether you're an elder, a minister, a deacon, uh, a teacher, a song leader, whatever it is you do, 
you're not more important intrinsically than anyone else. Now, you have a different gift. You have a different role. Mm -hmm. You serve as a different part of the body. And he gives some examples of that. And, yeah, right. And I, you know what I like about Romans 12 versus 1 Corinthians 12 is that all but one of the gifts, unless I counted it incorrectly, but all the all but one of the gifts are non-miraculous natural gifts. I mean, you, right. you had called them spiritual gifts, and that they are spiritual gifts, but not in the sense that they're miraculous gifts because he's listing things like service and teaching and exhortation and con- contributing, being generous leadership, uh, being merciful. Yeah. You know, those are gifts we normally don't think of as gifts from from God, but uh, he says they are. Yeah. And the, the other side of this, too, I think is, so first of all, we need to recognize our gift, recognize we are of a certain level of importance, not any higher or lower than anyone else. And then also, this little phrase that he has here, uh, having gifts that differ... <laughs> according to the grace given to us. <laughs> not defer. Yeah, not defer. Let us use them. And that's yeah. the other big part of this for me. Let us use them. Mm-hmm. So whatever your gift is, don't think that it's not good enough and get to the discouraging point of, you know, I, I mean, what do I even do with this? You know, like the parable of the talents, the man that had the one talent just went and buried it. Right. Didn't even use it. I don't even have enough to use it. I'm just going to go bury it. And we know that he was, he was uh, judged for that. He was judged harshly for that. So what gifts we do have, we need to use them. We need to be apt to use them as much as we can. And on top of that, uh, we need to be excited about using them. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, if we're going to move through this just verse by verse. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're about to wanna, drop down to zeal. Yeah. I don't want to get. Okay. Well, do we talk about love? Yeah, that's the next one. Let's talk about love. Let Let's love be genuine, verse love. 9. Uh, which we tied, you tied together with uh, this, the stuff from verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also with uh, brotherly affection. I think that that's great. Now, what the most interesting parts of this are, number one, that love is kind of a debt that you will always owe. Yeah. Verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, which seems to imply that there's no way that you can ever finish loving. Yeah. Because that debt is just always outstanding because of the cross. Um, And then when he says in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Yeah. We need to think about that for a second. Uh, to me, what that means is that you can carry out the letter of the law and still not be fulfilling the law. Yeah. You can, um, you know, keep yourself from killing somebody, but if you're not doing that out of love, you're only doing that out of fear of uh, punishment. Yeah. You're not fulfilling the law. Yeah. You can, you can not steal your neighbor's property and still not be following the law. Because the law means don't kill because you love. Don't steal because you love. Don't mm-hmm. commit adultery because you love. Um, worship God because you love. Whatever the commandment is that you're following, your motivation 
behind it should be love. Um, and that's what makes it God's law versus other kinds of law. His, yeah. his law is to be obeyed out of love. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what that means to me. Yeah. The fulfilling of the law. It doesn't mean that as long as your heart's okay, as long mm-hmm. as your intentions are good, then you're fulfilling the law, no matter what you yeah. do. I think it's been mm-hmm. misinterpreted that, uh, that way before that, well, as long as I'm sincere and, you know, I mean well, then I'm okay. Yep. That, that's not what that means. That means the proper mm-hmm. motivation is love. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you just hit the nail on the head. The proper motivation is love. And we talk about the greatest command is to love the Lord your God. And the second one is like it. And really, if you think about it, if you get those two commandments right, then what you just said is going to happen. You know, if you get the, the idea of loving God first above all else and then loving my neighbor as myself, that is definitely going to lead you into this kind of fulfilling the law here. You're doing the right thing and you're doing the right thing for the right reason. Mm-hmm. You know, motivated by that kind of love. Like you said, I guess, and I forgot what the exact term you used was, the basis motivation um, thing behind it. Certainly, just because you love somebody, you know, I love you, but I'm going to treat you like dirt because, I mean, I'm still fulfilling the law because mm-hmm. I love you. Well, no, you're not. Um, yeah. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. What kind of love are we talking about? The kind right. of love that yeah. you see in First Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. One that's patient and kind and all those other things that are and, listed there. And, he, you know, I, I know we need to move on, but uh, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. So that is kind of a arrow through the heart of the idea that I love that guy, I just don't like him. Yeah. God said I have to love that person, but he didn't say I had to like him. That drives heard, me crazy. I've heard people say that a lot. I hear it all the time. I've yeah. said it before, though, so I guess I can't. Yeah, but maybe you were joking. It's it's wrong. It's just wrong. You're, you're supposed to love them and like them at the same time. And what people mean when they say, I love him, I just don't like him, they mean they don't love him. That's yeah, what they mean. exactly. <laughs> they just, it's semantics. I mean, yeah. you, you, you either love the person or you don't. Now, I think we need, a good way to clear that up is to define, you know, love is not like a, a warm, happy, sentimental, all the time kind of feeling. You know, love is a commitment to someone else's well-being uh, above your own. It can really. be until Paul says, "Love one another with brotherly affection." Now, maybe you could be. Maybe that limits it to the church. You know, when yeah. it says one another, he's talking to a group of Christians. So mm-hmm. maybe I don't love. Adolf Hitler with brotherly affection. I, I get yeah. that. Yeah. Love your enemies. Matthew five forty four is different yeah. from Romans twelve ten. But if you're talking about a brother or sister in Christ, part of your spiritual family, you're supposed to have affection for that person. Yeah. Let me. Love. Yeah. Let me kind of qualify what I'm saying here. Yeah, I think you need to. It's, um, it's like if you have a brother, you. I mean, you love your brother. Now there are times when. You know, you want to punch him in the face, I'm sure. Uh, if you've ever had a sibling uh, that's around your same age growing up, there are times when you get angry with another. Uh, maybe times when you don't feel the warm and fuzzy kind of uh, affection here, but at the same time, you know, that's still your brother, and there still is an affection there, uh, you know, that's going to keep you, I guess, from, from uh, lashing out in certain ways. 
But well, families, you know, families disagree. There are fights in families. Yeah. But those are the exception to the rule. I yeah, think I don't as long wanna, as the rule is affection, we're in good shape. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. give the idea that, you know, we have to always, all the time, be filled with butterflies. Because <laughs> we're not going to be. Yeah, and you're gonna like. You're gonna have more affection for some than others. Yeah, that that's okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't say love everyone equally. You know, yeah. in terms of your affection level. Yeah. Um, I you know some people we get we get questions about clicks, you know, uh, from people that feel left out, and then questions about uh, having best friends. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, if we were to say that you have to love everybody with the equal affection, then you can't be married. Yeah. I mean, marriage is the supreme example of picking favorites. And, yeah. you know, Jesus had his favorites, uh, Peter, Peter, James, and John, or um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He had close friends. Well, he God, still loved everybody. Right, yeah. yeah. And he had affection for all, all his spiritual family, mm-hmm. but the affection came in levels. So uh, just relax, and like yeah, people, it's... but you know maybe just like them a little bit if they. <laughs> you don't have to pretend like someone that drives you nuts is your best friend of all right, time. Right, right. And absence makes the heart grow fonder. So maybe sometimes <laughs> yeah. you need to get away from them for a little bit. Yeah, just leave people alone. All right. Um, what's next? Do not be slothful in zeal. Verse eleven, but be fervent. That's not spirit. next. What's well, not next? What about outdo one another in I showing we honor? Gonna, okay, we wouldn't talk about that too. Outdo one well, another. All in I wanted honor. to say about that is, that's like he's making a competition for honor. Yeah, we're, I just called last leaders before we started. <laughs> now we have this as. Yeah. It's uh, the idea. I think. Uh, let me look here. The idea is to seek to show honor more than you seek to receive honor. Give preference to one another. It's not necessarily a let's keep track of who honors more because then we're kind of defeating the whole thing because now you're trying to get honor by showing honor. So in doing that, in showing honor, you're just trying to get more honor so I can say, look, I showed more honor than you did. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not handing out any trophies for this. Uh, The idea... I think the best commentary on this is in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 where Paul says, With humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves or as more significant than yourselves. Mm -hmm. More concerned with showing other people honor and appreciation and respect than you are with gaining the respect and appreciation of others. That's certainly the problem. Taking the, the lead is another way. Yeah. Yeah, like the opposite of the Pharisees. Yeah. Trying to honor others and to get honor. Yeah. Okay. Now, you now may go on over. to... I'm okay. sorry about that. All right. Whatever, man. Now we're here. Chapter 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. And I really like this one. It's a good encouragement to me to get up and to do something. Not to be slothful in zeal. Zeal being the, you know, the excitement, the willingness, I guess, to do something. Uh, Paul is... He defines himself according to the law, zealous. He was uh, one of the most zealous of his sect of the Pharisees, uh, which led him to do a lot of things that later he would say he was the chief of sinners because he did those things. Um, But it applies to us because in everyday terms, the Greek's talking about don't be lazy, pretty much. And 
coming from the point of view of uh, being a youth minister, man, isn't it great when you have, and I have a lot of really, really good help, uh, where people will come to me and ask how they can help, or they'll already have an idea of how they can help, and they'll let me know this is what they want to do. Uh, and it's, it is good to be self-motivated and being able to activate yourself to do that kind of thing rather than to just sit around and passively wait on somebody to come and activate you. Oh, man. I know. Look, we can't possibly do that. I, you know, um, we get that a lot in the church, and, you know, people sometimes complain, uh, you know, nobody's asked me to do anything. And I've been a member of this church for three years, and nobody signed me up for this or that. Look, you're going to have to do that yourself. Yeah. You're going to have to, when we say there's a work day at such and such time, you're going to have to show up for that without mm-hmm. somebody going to you and saying, I need you, you please to be here. Come? Or, you, know, no. uh, you know, I'll do that if you just ask. Well, asking is like yeah. part of the work for me. Yeah, don't make us, don't make us ask. Don't be, it's, I mean, I yeah. might just be harping here, but. Now, some people have to be trained, you know, if they're new to the church, they don't know how things work. But you, you know, can tell the people that. that are that are fervent in spirit. You can tell the people yes. that are not yeah, slothful yeah. in zeal because they want to help. Yeah. yeah, they just want to help, and they make themselves available, not only to help out with kind of stuff we're complaining about, um, but to to fulfill these things that we're talking about here. You know, don't be slothful in loving one another. Don't be slothful in hating what is evil. We skipped that one. Uh, don't be slothful in rejoicing in hope. Uh, and all these things, you need to have a high level of energy, I guess, yeah. and um, excitement as you tackle these things. And if you can do that, certainly, and that certainly it'll make these things a little bit easier and uh, being able to be done to a better capacity. What's the next one we want to move to? Uh, I want to talk about... Uh, you know, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. I want to talk about hospitality for a second. All, all, a lot of those are self-explanatory. We get to hospitality, we get to a deficit, you know, that we're having in our particular culture. It's just not as hospitable a culture as it used to be. No. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with how much more busy we are than we used to be. Um, you know, I think just about all women work now. So you got both uh, the husband and the wife gone from the home most of the day. If you got kids, they're all involved in. They're involved in everything. Yeah. And so plus they got to make good grades. Tired. School. Yeah, they they don't have as much time to do their homework. So yeah. I know when I get home, sometimes we get home from a ball practice or whatever and it's supper time and the kids are doing their homework after supper which is late it's cutting into their bedtime yeah and so when do you show hospitality i don't think that gives us an excuse to stop being hospitable and uh, you know even helps us out a little bit by saying seek to show hospitality yeah it kind of goes with what we were just saying gives a notion of effort you Look know, for an opportunity. Right. Yes. Yeah. It goes back to that previous thing. Don't yeah. just wait on. So many people are well. 
you know, I'd like to help somebody out, but nobody ever comes by. Yeah. Our church know? doesn't have a hospitality program. Yeah, I would love so to. I can't do it. Yeah, I mean, if we if we have this mindset with service projects, well, I'd love to do a great service project, but nobody ever comes by our building to ask. I mean, that's right. not how it works. I'd be fired in a heartbeat if those were the service projects I did. Yeah, just waiting on somebody to nobody's, show me need. Nobody's called me and said they need help. So, Nobody came and told me they were lonely. Yeah, so, so I we didn't haven't show any hospitality. Yeah, we're not going to do anything unless someone asks. We need to see proactive. Yeah, you so, seek, you look around, you call people, you ask them. You, most people, look, the way you can do that, most people go out to eat on Sunday afternoons, at least at our church. Yeah. So just grab somebody and ask them to come eat with you. Yeah. You don't even have to pay for their meal. They'll be glad to pay for their own meal. Yeah. Um, paying for it would be nice, but take take somebody especially out, if you ask me a to new member. Yeah. Especially <laughs> Andrew. But he eats a lot, so... Watch out. That I do. You can do that. You can go, you can try to line something up on a weekend. Um, it, there's there's just no excuse for not being hospitable. Yeah. And uh, this is, you know, all through the Bible. Uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews says some have entertained angels unaware. Yeah. Um, Abraham was a great example of a hosp- hospitable person. So, anyway, we're... We camped on that long enough. Um, yeah, I want to back up real quick and catch 12, verse 12, just for the sake of moving through these. Uh, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. We've really covered that in Romans chapter 8 already. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. kind of part of the reason that we're glossing over it now. So if you want more on that, uh, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, you can go back and see what that hope is, the hope of our future glory. In chapter 8, which gives and us... In chapter 5. Yeah. He talks about rejoicing and in hope a little bit at the beginning of chapter 5. Yeah. The verse I'm thinking of here, especially, is 8.18, where he says, I consider yeah. that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So right. the hope, the greatness of the hope, makes it easier to endure your tribulation. So the more you rejoice in the hope, the more patient you can be in tribulation, almost, is what we see from Paul. Then be constant in prayer. I think we're all well aware of the admonition that Paul gives to the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Uh, yes. To always be in prayer. Uh, and I will never forget this. And I say this every time I start talking about prayer. Aubrey Johnson has said the greatest mystery in all of mankind is why Christians don't pray more. Mm-hmm. And I think that is 100% true. Yes. Um, and that moves us on into verses, to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We've we've kind of already covered this in the second section. Uh, we were talking about, well, maybe we didn't. Uh, well, we talked about not seeking personal vengeance. Yeah, and this is kind of, this falls into that. It's mm-hmm. separated off from those others, but it's what Jesus said: love your enemies. Yeah, bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, don't be only friendly. I'm thinking back to the Sermon on the Mount. You can't only treat your brothers in a kind manner. Yeah. You know, Jesus says, if you greet those only who greet you, what reward do you have? Mm-hmm. You know, so if you only wave to the people that wave to you first, you're not doing any good. Um, and that's a kind of a very simple way to say, bless those who persecute you. Uh, rejoice when those things happen is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice and be glad when mm-hmm. you're persecuted. 
uh, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, then verse 15, I do have a little bit to say about this one. Um, if we're done with 14, okay. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Again, this is a sentiment that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 that connects with the body all being connected. There are many members. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one rejoices, all rejoice with it. Uh, is there, I guess a question here would be, is there ever a time when it will be wrong not to rejoice? When is there ever a time wrong not to? Yeah, would it be sinful if you were not rejoicing? Is yes. there ever a time when it would be sinful if you were not weeping? Maybe not weeping, but at least feeling very sorrowful. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly we, with that. It, it would be wrong not to rejoice if. Oh man, the way you word that. Would it be sad my brain if you not. did not rejoice? If everybody any... around you is weeping, then it would be wrong for you to rejoice, right? right. Yeah, that's what I'm looking okay. at. Be and an if everybody example. around you is rejoicing, it would be wrong for you to sulk in the corner. Yeah, I think uh, kind of like the the other son from the parable of yeah. the uh, prodigal son. Right. Uh, I think the idea here is, you know, if, if our love is genuine... If we are truly connected as the different members of the body, certainly if you hurt your foot, the rest of your body is going to suffer. The rest of your body is going to pick up the slack. Um, and I think a really good idea to keep here is from the example of Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept. You know, everybody has that verse memorized. Jesus wept at the tomb. Well, why did he weep? And we've talked about, we talked about this in our podcast on John. Uh, he didn't weep simply because Lazarus had died because he was about to raise him up from the dead. Now there can be some debate is, is he crying because he's about to bring him back to life and he knows that he's already resting. But what the scripture says is that he sees Mary and all those around him are around her crying and he is deeply moved in his spirit. Yeah. So the fact that they were weeping is what caused him weep there in John 11. Right. I think, it's, it's sympathy, and it's not something you do deliberately. It's what you do when you start to really feel for other people. It flows yeah. out of verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. If yeah. you love the people around you, then your sympathetic nerve will fire whenever they're rejoicing or whenever they're weeping. Right. We don't need that. And this goes back to the I love you, but I don't like you whole thing. Yeah. Because with those kind of people, if you're sitting in church and you hear an announcement, well, brother so-and-so, you know, he got in an accident and he broke his leg. He's fine, but he broke his leg. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like that guy, you're sitting there like, oh, good enough for him. He broke his leg. Yeah. I'm glad he broke his leg. Now, there's an instance of where you should be sympathizing. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I can't believe he's in a wreck. I hope he's okay. Okay. He just broke his leg. Okay, good. But I need to go by and see him. I need to drop in, you know, may at least give him a phone call, something. And I think there's a, a very subtle way to totally disregard this rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep simply because we don't really have that kind of genuine love to be led to have that flow out of us naturally. Which, which one is easier, rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep? 
I, for most of us. Well, I think it's actually weeping with those who weep. Is easier. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I not I, you know it's. I don't know. We just tend to think if somebody's rejoicing, they've they they don't need me to help them. Hey, that. good for them. Yeah. Uh, that's the best possible attitude about not doing that. The worst possible one is being jealous or envious of somebody yeah. else's good luck or triumph. Yeah. And um, you know it. People people love for others to celebrate with them when they achieve something. Yeah. You know, they right. like for you to come to their 50th wedding anniversary party. They like mm-hmm. for you to be there at the baby shower. They like for you to write cards of congratulations. They like to get a pat on the back. The biggest the thing back. I'm thinking of is when somebody comes to Christ. I mean, that's yeah. that and that's where I get I get myself in trouble too cuz uh you know what what better time in someone's life, what better reason to rejoice than when a person's baptized? And many times when a person gives their life to Christ, you know, they're they're in tears because they're so because there's a lot of emotions wrapped up in it. And one of those emotions is joy. Certainly that is if there's ever a time in your life to have joy, that's it. And I find myself a lot of times if it's a Sunday night or I mean or just any time that we're together, you know, you almost uh, there have been a few times where you think, is my heart in the right place? Like, am I genuinely happy that another soul is being added to the church? Or am I, do, or do I just logically recognize, hey, this is positive. This is good. You know? Yeah. And I think that determines how you react afterwards. You're going to go talk to them or you're going to go tell them that you are excited and happy and you're rejoicing for what they've done. Or are you just going to be, well, the line's kind of long, I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. I'll say something to him next time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at what we've done here. We have gone over our time. We made so, it. But we did do a lot more application today, which was which was good. And there's a lot more left on the table, too. Oh, sure, to. yeah. We just scratched the surface. But we're thankful to you for joining us, and uh, please keep in touch. You can email me at dkaiser at arcoc.com or... Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. The website is the66.net. 66 is a number. Uh, the podcast, I mean, the uh, Twitter handle is the66podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook page. We've got one of those. Yep. And, uh, or if you know us personally, just say hi sometimes. It's nice to hear. Uh, but we're, uh, we're enjoying it. We're closing in on the end of Romans. So stay with us. We'll see you next time.